I am Simone Cipriani and I am an officer of the United Nations. And I'm Claire Press and I'm a sustainable fashion journalist. You are listening to the Ethical Fashion Podcast. We can change the world. We hope you're enjoying the new series with its focus on Africa. This week, Simone and I are excited to welcome a guest host to take our place. She is Roberta Anan, an Accra-based impact investor and friend of the Ethical Fashion Initiative. She is in conversation with Patricia Obonai, CEO of Vodafone Ghana. As a member of the Ghana Institute of Engineers with a degree in electrical engineering, Ms. Obonai is an advocate for more women in STEM, science, technology, engineering and mathematics. She is passionate about getting technology into the hands of more people, in particular young people, in Africa and beyond. This is a great chat between two formidable female Ghanaian business leaders, all about doing digital business in Africa and opening up tech and entrepreneurial avenues to the next generation, as well as to more women. Don't forget to let us know what you think. You can find us on Instagram at Ethical Fashion and there's more info on our website. Just look for the link in the show description. Welcome to this week's Ethical Fashion podcast series. My name is Roberta Annan, the founder and managing partner of Anan Capital Partners, ACP. Before I introduce our wonderful guest, I'd like to share some context with you. Women make 80% of purchase decisions worldwide, controlling 72 trillion US dollars. Women-led startups on average have better return on investment. According to the Boston Consulting Group, women generate 10% more revenue over a five-year period than their male counterparts. According to Goldman Sachs, female managed funds outperform male rivals. Companies with gender diverse C-suites are 21% more likely to have above average profitability and 27% more likely to have greater long-term value creation. Women have lower MPL rates and are more loyal customers to financial institutions. However, women aren't seen in their numbers at top, top corporations in the leadership role. Women fund managers are less than 5%. Female-led enterprises in the African continent have less chance to receive a loan, even though statistics show that women have a lower non-performing loan rates than their, their male counterparts. Why is this? I think it's important to see and have a conversation with a woman at the helm of affairs in Ghana. I'm delighted to be in conversation with the wonderful Patricia Obonai the first Kenyan female CEO of Vodafone Ghana, a STEM advocate and a pioneering woman in tech, business and leadership. Welcome, Patricia. Thank you, Roberta. It's always a pleasure. We are recording this session a few days after International Women's Day, which was March 8th. What does that day mean to you? You know, for me, um, everyone says every day is Women's Day. But for me, this is special. It's special because it allows us to celebrate the progress that we have made as a society around inclusion of women. And I think it also helps us to come to the realization that there are still gaps and there are issues. Um, it continues to persist in, in the corporate world, in politics, every aspect of society. And so for me, the day is important. For us at Vodafone, 
We have set a global target that we will be the best employer for women by 2025. So this week, uh, we've actually spent time training the organization on gender violence and abuse, what to look out for. I believe that is not just talking about women, but it's talking about the issues. Creating the awareness helps align managers to support women. I read a quote from you where you said, and I quote, keep perfecting your trade, keep learning, keep upskilling, unquote. Why do you think these things are so important? Let's talk about education. Okay, so the world is changing. If you look at what COVID has even brought to us, the sheer pace of the digital innovation we're seeing means that we have to do things very differently. The way we do things in our professional settings are evolving at an incredible pace. And so I believe that upskilling um, and continue to highlight the need to improve on the existing skills that we have. It's something that it's so necessary for the youth. The skills that we are acquiring in school um, through education seems to be a little at par with what is required by the employers. And if we don't highlight this issue and industry and academia work together, you will churn out graduates who will not find value in the organization because they still come in thinking they are Excel sheets to fill. Things have been automated. And their, their creativity, the ability to problem solve, identifying the needs of customers and coming up with solutions is what is going to be required. And so for me, asking people to keep learning, um, keep upskilling means that find something else that you can build on the basic skills and grow. Otherwise, when the change happens and the change is no longer your choice, the world is changing, you will be found wanting. You will be found wanting. Employers are launching so many digital tools just because of this pandemic. How many people have been able to adapt? I mean, who, who ever thought that we we're going to use some of the tools that we're using today? We were testing resilience working from home as just part of business continuity. And suddenly, everybody has to communicate digitally. People are using their phones to get their stocks managed, etc. If you don't acquire new skills, how are you going to adapt? So for me, this is why I'm sounding this call and I keep repeating myself that we should not take it for granted. It should come through our educational system. In Vodafone, for example, yes, people are already educated. They are back, they are back at the workplace. So what do we do? We have launched a program called One More Skill. And it is, it's literally mandatory from my level to the, the last person in the team where you have to acquire an extra skill before the final the year ends. And it doesn't have to be very directly related to what you do, but it is using your spare time to get into one of these fields. Technology is going to influence a lot of the things we do. And if you don't get into, we have like 14 skills, um, big data, AI, blockchain, agile. Listen, it sounds scary to people who are not in technology until you start reading about it and how it affects the way you work. I'm looking at big data, I'm looking at analytics um, to influence my work I do as a CEO. So I don't, it's not as if I'm going um, into core technology again. However, I need some of these skills into the way I make decisions. And that's how we want people to start thinking. That's how we want the organization to start thinking. This is why I keep making this call over there. So Patricia, I'd like to discuss the economic impacts of COVID 
on, I'll say, in Ghana um, and also in Africa, and how you think COVID has impacted the digitization of businesses to be able to meet new customers and to meet new markets. If you look at what this pandemic has done to us, right, and it is happening in my business, it's altered the psychology of, of shopping. And, and I think that businesses will need to have very reliable data, some insights on how they do their projections, how they are making decisions. And, and I think this is something that um, a lot of businesses haven't gone into. We take the chance with it for the customer to come in and then we react. And I think now using data, using the insights, being able to build that database to be able to make um, a decision on how people are shopping is going to influence our way going forward. And that, that for me, is, is a challenge. The other thing is, is how digital is shifting in the way people are shopping, their, their, their shopping habits, how they are going online. I mean, how people are looking for convenience, working through their smartphones. Um, organizations who delay in responding, in adapting to this will, will struggle. People still expect um, consumers to walk to the shop and they haven't moved their businesses online. When we launched business online um, during the, the pandemic, when the lockdown had just started, it was incredibly shocking to find so many, so many um, small scale enterprises not knowing what to do. Their online presence was just not there or it was just, yes, we have a website. And if you wanted to buy from them, even how to pay, was was an issue and so for me the shift into digital by the consumer and therefore companies having to accelerate and, and pick up um, is a challenge that we will all have to work together to address entrepreneurs will need access to the internet they'll need access to data but your consumers will also have to be there so building that joint ecosystem um, to make it, you can't force people to come when we have a pandemic, but you need to get him to have access to a phone to get onto your website, you know. And I think that's a real challenge for, for the creative um, and for entrepreneurs. And then your whole workforce management, you know. Now we've moved into this a very, very disruptive way of working. Companies are going virtual much faster than they ever planned to be. And how you are even going to measure productivity, how you are going to enforce productivity and whilst you are keeping your employees engaged and working remotely, I think it's something that, yes, big corporates may have been have, may have taken the lead, but a lot of entrepreneurs, a lot of startups. A lot of our creatives um, will, will be facing that challenge. And I think it's a dimension that we all have to think about. But I think it also presents vast opportunities for us for when your people start working. We have been working at home since March, March last year. So it's been a year. And I think I have a more productive, more engaged organization than I used to have because now I can broadcast to my organization once a month. I used to travel every quarter to every region to meet the team. And now every month I speak to my entire organization and it doesn't matter what time of day I can do it. So rethinking our business model and it allows us to be very efficient. I mean, I'm saving a lot on office space and sometimes you couldn't even recruit talents because they had to relocate to your country. Now they can sit in their markets um, in, in other countries and just support you. So a more collaborative workspace, um, ability to allow people to be flexible, work from home and still be productive. I think it's an opportunity that we should tap into. Um, and entrepreneurs don't need to um, start with huge office spaces again. Um, as long as they have the talent, it's fine. 
And I think it's opening up a lot of innovation. Come on. I only say that those who have the eyes who see the opportunity that this pandemic has brought and will explode. And innovation in Africa, the new business models in 2021, I think we should just take off. People are beginning to think of how to deliver their services through digital. Whoever thought about this whole augmented reality and virtual just coming right into our space. I mean, I have embedded a virtual assistant now into our WhatsApp, the way we interact with our customers. This was a program we had drawn, was going to take us time. And now more than 23% of all the unassisted services I give is through the virtual assistant, which is on WhatsApp. And my team just announced last week, yeah, Patricia, we're putting it on SMS as well. Our nice cute robots will be chatting on SMS with our customers. Fantastic. Well, I mean, I, I have the opportunity to retrain some of my call center staff into, into stuff that I need on the commercial floors, etc. You know, they can be calling customers and engaging better. So I see opportunity um, being created um, in the process. But our youth, this level of Unemployment for me is something that we need to address. It's very sad. And just the, the challenges that the pandemic has brought even makes it more enormous. Let's talk about the creative industries. This is an industry that is very dear to my heart that I've been working in this space. And I know that Vodafone have also committed to supporting, you know, young creatives in Ghana. You know, Ghana has a very young population. I think this is quite a common theme in many African countries where I think 60% of the population are under the age of 25, which is to me a huge um, investment potential. In your opinion, what do you think are the challenges and opportunities facing the next generation of creatives and entrepreneurs in Ghana? And how can young people best use technology to get ahead? Because if you look at the counterparts in other regions, you know, they are developing things in the AI and VR and, and all of that. And I think we're lagging behind. So what, how do you think technology can play a role in advancing that and, and bridging that gap? What we are beginning to see is that a lot of these youth don't have access to internet. If we're talking about digital, we're talking about technology, we're talking about embedding it in what they were, be entrepreneurs, how are they going to compete? Just like you said, internet connectivity across Africa is so low and we need to have innovative ways to serve the, the unconnected, the underserved, and even where we are serving, whether the, the, capacity, the coverage, the quality is good enough for somebody to run his business online. You know, there's a lot of infrastructure that is required I mean, the, the infrastructure gap in Africa is $100 billion worth of ICT infrastructure. And so the industry alone cannot do it. This is a seminal challenge for us. And we need to address it. We need to work together with government. And if you look at some of the work that we're doing with the Ministry of Communications, they have said, listen, we can't leave this to the telcos. We're going to build sites in rural and we need the telcos to come up with their core and their marketing skills and the ability to onboard customers and all the innovation. And let's do this together. And I think that's the right direction that a lot of African markets should be getting into. So if we're going to address unemployment, I think first we need to get them online. We need to get the cities, their villages connected so that they, we remove that barrier. And then secondly, we need to embed technology into the way we're educating our kids today. I'm not saying everybody should be a scientist. I'm just saying whether the person decides to go into legal or HR and everything, they must understand the technology trends that are influencing the way they work 
that are influencing how they can be more efficient in the careers they have chosen and be able to, to just use it. You don't have to build it, just be able to use it and use it well. So I'm very happy that, for example, in Ghana, basic STEM, now we say STEM, but they say basic STEM, B STEM, is in across all primary um, curriculum, you have basic STEM. This is fantastic. We should build it into the, the secondary school curriculum as well, so that our kids are exposed, they are competing with the world, and they cannot afford not to know about these technologies before they start working. You know, so so for me, it's a mindset shift about how we prepare these young ones before they get into places where they are waiting to be employed. We cannot address youth unemployment by waiting for somebody to employ our youth. The world is using technology. It's not a choice. It is about adapting or dying. And so we need to expose them to it and then create the environment. And that's why I talk about connectivity, access to data, so that they can thrive, so that they can take up some of the many problems of this world and solve it. That's how entrepreneurs succeed. I definitely agree with you, Patricia. I mean, I think entrepreneurship is what's going to support this agenda to create jobs and opportunities for the young population we have on the African continent. We need to promote entrepreneurship and we need to encourage areas like creativity, which is an a tool for inclusive growth and development of our continent. Innovation is also important, as you've talked about, with STEM education. And I like that you're also kind of advocating in that field. And I, one thing that I, I really, really thought was interesting and I would like to highlight is the connectivity issue and you know access to internet and data um, for young people so that we can also like be competitive in the market. And there's a, there's a report from uh, the GSMA that states that 747 million SIM connections are found in Sub-Saharan Africa in 2019. That represents 75% of the population. In Ghana, 80% own mobile phones. So if we have mobile phones and connectivity is an issue, how is this going to affect the future of work? And, and you know, when we hear the stats, it seems like we don't have the problem. But if you come to Ghana, for example, we say, well, mobile penetration is over 138%. But think about the number of people who actually have those SIM cards. It's one person having 2.3, 2.5 SIM cards. So there are about 25 to 30% of the population who don't even have phones in their hands and don't have the SIM card. So one person has my SIM cards and two other competitor SIM cards. Oh, mobile penetration is high. No, we have people who actually do not have it. So connectivity, access to internet is going to be important. There's task that says that 37% of women will not have access to mobile data. I mean, this is ridiculous and we should work to, to close it. But we ask about what this means for the future. If we have so many SIM cards, at least, yes, penetration is so high, it's about 50%. What does this mean? For me, it means economic value, right? It means that we are going to see people using mobile technologies, using the services that are provided and contributing to GDP growth. So for me, adding economic value is the first benefit. The other one is, it means we are creating jobs. If people have access to devices, it means that they can, they can have access to information, they can create businesses, and then they create opportunities to employ others as well, directly and indirectly. I 
spend some time in the north where we were trying to train um, women and give them financial skills, give them access to mobile tech. Some of them have not even seen the phone before or own it. It is the husband that owns it or somebody owns it in the community. What it means is when you put this device in the woman's hands and you train her how to save because she can just deposit the money she makes from the farm selling farm produce onto her phone. Now, this becomes savings for her. This is no longer money in a box that somebody can just dip his hands into. When the husband passes away, this woman is left with nothing. Now her money is electronic, is saved on her phone. She can have access to credit, access to microcredit. She can now be independent. She can stand on her feet and be able to take care of her own. So for me, this um, SIM penetration in Africa, access to mobile phones, is it's fundamental to the development that we want to see. It's opening up the economy, it's increasing our GDP growth. It's um, liberating for, for people who are, are in the minority, people who are poor, people who are, are vulnerable. And there's so many examples, I mean, of young girls and boys whose lives have been saved just because they have access to information on health, on just health. i give you one last example. We had a situation in Tanzania, and, and we're trying to launch this also in Ghana, where women are dying in this day and age because they don't have, they don't get to the hospitals quickly to deliver their babies, right? And this is just through basic technology that you can, you can reach this woman, connect her to a taxi or an ambulance, and when she's in pain, she can move from that village and come to the nearest ship compound, the nearest community center to get access to, to health. And 20% of women who are dying, bleeding on their way to the hospital will be dead. So for me, this is health, this is education, this is economic development, this is jobs. And it only gets exciting. <laughs> we should solve the basic problems of connectivity and open Africa up. I want to go to your personal story because I'm sure a lot of young women listening in are like, how did she get there? How did she do it? How did she rise up the ranks of you know her company to get to the very top level? And I think oftentimes people see the success stories, but they don't really understand the journey and the challenges, you know, and the pain. So I want to just take it to the personal um, story a bit. Where did you grow up? You know, what did your parents do? How did you envision yourself growing up as a young girl? Um, where did you go to school? You know, it would be nice to share your story with young women. <laughs> okay, let me keep it short. So I was born, bred, schooled in Ghana, um, all the way from my degree to my master's. So it's possible to do it in Ghana. What I have is executive education um, as I progressed. Um, so exposure is also good. I had executive education in London Business School. I had the privilege of going to Kellogg um, School of Management to improve on my marketing um, and then business strategy also in INSEAD for France. And there was a reason for this. Um, my background is technology. I have a degree in electrical engineering. And um, for, for me to move from my technology director, which I've done for more than 14 to 15 years, it was important um, and taking up a commercial or to acquire the knowledge. And that's why I applied and I got these good schools to be to help me to accelerate that uh, knowledge acquisition. But my fundamentals were all acquired in Ghana. And I did a lot of internship actually from my first year 
all the way through to my final year. I actually worked my last day of working. The following day, I started my national service. So I never took a proper break through my internships to, to proper work life. But it was important because it helped me to understand some of the things that were being taught in school, um, all the theories I was hearing. Every vacation, I'd come to um, one of the telecom companies and get a practical experience. And that, that also really helped me. But growing up, my mother actually studied biochem in school and she ended up being a banker all her life. Wow. <laughs> my father was in civil engineering, civil works. Um, and so my parents were very open. They never influenced what we, we wanted to pursue. I am in science. My, my twin sister is in social sciences. She worked as a banker for years. Uh, my other sister went into psychology and runs a school. Um, at the moment, and then the last one is an accountant. So we're, we've been we've been left to pursue what we believe we love. I loved math. I love science. I was horrible at reading biology, history, and economics. And so anything that was easy to just you know something that's not subjective. Um, two plus two is four, and that's math done. You know. So I loved things like that, and and that's why I went into electrical engineering. I just loved basic changing of bulbs. You asked how I was when I was growing up. I just loved changing bulbs, replacing fridge plugs. And my mother bought a fun home, you know, the do-it-yourself type of thing, put it together. I love to do things like that. So it was more about passion than anybody compelling me to, to follow something because that's what society expected. Um, and I've had a very supportive family who have helped me, believe me. If, if you don't have support, from home, pursuing a career like mine, which was technology director in two telecom companies, and then moving to a commercial role, learning on the job, getting through this with childbearing. I have three boys through the process doing my MBA, and then staying sane and getting to become a CEO. You need a very supportive family. A lot depends on your passion, your willingness to um, not allow people to hold you back. I put a lot of burden on the individual more than the society because it's very difficult to change society. But I think a lot depends on you and what you want to do. And then you can break some of the barriers. And I put you on the spot and hear yours as well, Roberta. <laughs> <laughs> well, my story. <laughs> well, it's quite similar to yours. So I studied biochem actually like your mom and biotech all the way to the master's level um my education was partly here and outside so my initial first i'd say 13 years were in ghana in primary school i come from a family of scientists so my grandfather was a scientist and my aunties my uncle a lot of my family members are scientists so inevitably i was kind of going into that direction because my mom deviated. So somebody had to take that baton. So I went and studied biochem and biotech. And the plan was for me to go into the medical field or to go into research. I completely diverted <laughs> after my master's degree because I was like, hmm, I'm not really, there's this family legacy. You know, when you name after your grandfather, everybody expects you to do something. I'm like, no, you know what? I want to work with in development. And it's interesting because I went to a school that initially, I went to SOS, I'm a minor in international college in Tema, and the whole IB system ensured that I had not just my core you know, education, but I also had the creativity, action, and service. The service part really, really stayed home with me. 
And so when I finished my education, I knew I wanted to give back. So I worked with the UN. I left, finished my master's, went and worked in with the United Nations. I worked my way from an intern to, you know, consultancy to get in a full-time position. I really navigated my way around. I learned how to network very quickly because I realized in life, it wasn't just about your education. It wasn't just about your background, but it was really about how you could manage your relationships you're blessed with. Right. So I created a business. I realized that after um, leaving um, the UN, I got a very solid network and I wanted to come back to Ghana to really impact positively. So my business after the UN was really set up just to with a mindset that I was going to direct private capital into some of the social economic, most challenging social economic issues we have here on the continent. And by introducing alternative investment asset class, you touched on an interesting thing, which was building the technology infrastructure. You know, these are things that an investor coming into Africa would think, okay, maybe I need to build roads, bridges. I mean, these are very, very interesting infrastructure, but the intangible infrastructure needs to also be built. And somebody needs to make a case for this before investors. And that's what I've been working on for the past eight years. Awesome. You see, it was good I asked. You have such a fantastic story. We needed to hear it. Thank you. In 2014, you had a TED Talk in the body where you busted the myth of tech jobs being for geeks. <laughs> the idea that it's for those who don't want to have fun, those who don't have a life. <laughs> you pointed out that tech is essential to our lives and, and said it's part of your life. Why are we running away from it? I really want us to discuss this. <laughs> you know, for me, I think that we're missing an opportunity. We keep importing what people have done, reading about them, saying the world is amazing. And yet we don't want to go into why the world has become so amazing and the, the innovation and everything that people are driving. They're able to do a lot of these things because they have embedded technology into the way they work and they have become smarter. We say things that we make in Ghana are more expensive. Retail is more expensive. You bring things from other countries and they are cheaper because they have embedded technology in the way they produce. So they have become more efficient. You mentioned that women are making 80% of the purchasing decisions in their homes. And yet we are not participating in how these technologies get shaped, get formed, whether it's convenient for us to turn the door of the microwave left or right. It will come from this woman who, who uses it. You know, and so I was advocating that we should stop having this mindset around technology is, is heavy weight lifting. And it's, it's, it's almost like if just because you work with the truck um, means that you're actually carrying the truck, the heavy truck. No, you use a lot of your brains to get in. The machines are doing a lot. And a lot, a lot depends on your thinking and your ability to create and solve the problem. And so we should allow, yes, as individuals, we must participate in it. First, know about it, break all these myths and stereotypes around it. And then secondly, allow our young girls to participate because people are still in this day and age telling their kids that they won't get husbands if they move into jobs that are male, into industries that are male-dominated. This is ridiculous and has to stop. You know, and it's as if getting a husband is the final thing that will shape this woman. And, and so she has to be held back in building a career and everything because she wouldn't get a husband. 
And that that type of mindset, that type of thinking is, is what I was trying to say. Listen, I get my hair done. I get my nails done. I'm married. I have three children. I have a life. And yet I'm able to participate in this beautiful um, way. And in any case, it pays. There are 9 million jobs that are going to be created in Ghana, according to the IFC, by 2030. If you want your kids to get employment, if you want to get them into something that is sustainable, this is the place to be. That's awesome. We all are. I think it's it's definitely our time. I think these conversations are being taken more seriously. I mean, if you look at women as the helm of leadership organizations, such as the World Trade Organization with Ngozi and, you know, is it the IMF and the World Bank and, you know, UN Women, I think that conversation is becoming more and more serious and people are paying attention. So Patricia, my, my last question uh, for you, what are your thoughts on the challenges for women in leadership in Africa today and in Ghana, especially since we are you know, both here in Ghana? Can you elaborate a bit on that? Okay. Let me just summarize it in three. One will be, I think we need more role models. I believe that they are very competent women who are doing lots of great things, but there are very few women who are telling their stories. And so a lot of other people do not believe that it exists and feel inspired and feel motivated and feel that they are not alone and can pursue it. So I encourage more women to, to speak up, um, be on platforms, show themselves up, um, to be an encouragement to the other ladies who are coming up. I also believe that some of the challenges that the women in Africa are facing will be the stereotypes. So women can't be good leaders. Women will fall off uh, by the time they start having children. They can't get to the top because they can't combine it. Women who are assertive are bossy. Women are too emotional. They can't undertake certain kinds of work. A woman cannot be a truck driver. You know, very heavy stereotyping. And, and when a woman is pregnant, she's probably not be able to run the full course um, before she takes a maternity leave and things like that. We can't find competence women. So many things, you know, we just have to open our eyes and take off these lenses that are blocking our sight. And then we'll be able to see that the world, if 50% of the population of Ghana, 50% of the population of the world are women, then they should be allowed to, to participate. And a lot depends on the women themselves and how we're able to put our competences forward um, so that it is not a topic for a discussion. The last thing I, I would mention is definitely the work-life balance. There's still that mindset that the woman's place is the kitchen. And, and so whilst she could excel and put so much weight on the work she does at work, She's literally expected to put a similar effort into, into the kitchen, into taking care of her home. But who says that her husband can't take care of the home with her? You know, the world has moved on. The world has changed. A lot of women are any income to support what their husbands are bringing to the, to the family. And so the mindset, you know, to help this woman to manage the family demands and work, especially when she's getting to the peak of her career, is going to be very important. This has been amazing. I am so glad that we got to spend 45 minutes with you this morning, Patricia. And now that you've shared a golden, um, you know, it's been so inspiring just hearing your story and your leadership style. It's been a pleasure. It's been a pleasure. You were an amazing host as well. Thank you very much for being there. 
Thank you for listening, my friends. Did you enjoy the show? Let us know. We'd love to hear from you. You can find us online at ethicalfashioninitiative.org and we are on Instagram at ethicalfashion. And don't forget to share the episode with your friends and with colleagues and with anyone you think would benefit from it. We love it when you tell other people. I'm going to say that again. (laughs) Can you help spread the word and share our story with your friends on social media? Our mission is to work towards sustainable development and create long-term impact in the communities where we operate. Through extensive training and mentorship, we build capacity and enable artisans to produce for the international market. Through this program, workers are empowered and can lift themselves out of poverty. Not charity, just work.